imagining a three-course serving of food. Local food here in Thunder Bay. Food in the kindness economy soon, as soon as we can make it happen. And it is doable, wonderful, a deepening and developing of food-giving ecosystems that will serve plenty for us all. Local food that will nourish us all and nourish this place. A food system that builds the health and, and well-being of the land. Water, air, that deepens and strengthens biodiversity and, and resilience through this time of climate chaos, food. And I'll serve it in three parts. The three parts of a sustainable food system. You gotta grow it, you gotta store it, you gotta share it. Grow it, keep it, share it. That's a three-course serving of local food I'm imagining in Thunder Bay's kindness economy. Something different this way comes something. Something different, something different. Something different this way comes something. Something different, something different. Food. Food. What is more essential than food? Your three square meals, your balanced diet, your gatherings around food. As a family, as friends, as community. To break bread and build connections. I love food. And, um, I don't do well without it. I mean, who does? Although, my hangry is scary. Easily triggered when I don't eat reliably. And well. I don't think well when I'm hangry. And I really like thinking. So... I cherish the food in my life. I think about it a lot. And in Thunder Bay, we are blessed when it comes to food. We have the capacity, the land, the savvy, and the people power to grow all the food we need right here locally. I talked to Brendan Grant, who with his wife Marcel Paulin grow vegetables at Sleepy G Farm, the only certified organic farm currently in the region, and I asked him what it would take for all the food eaten in Thunder Bay to be grown locally back in season one. And if you haven't heard that conversation, I recommend it. It was so interesting. And Brendan is inspiring. He did the math. He knows what he's talking about. It is so doable. We have what it takes. What we need, though, is to do it differently. To pour love onto the land. To not be miserly about it at all. What we need is people power. People pouring love and reaping food and healthier, happier land. People getting their hands dirty, more of us, in more ways, as a part of how we build our home and live in it. Because in growing more food locally, we can knit ourselves into closer, sweeter relationship with one another and with our home. Feeding our bodies, yes, and feeding our souls. Rise up, rise up, oh rise and feel your power. Rise up, rise up, spirit's time has come. People's time has come. You remember that song from the early 80s? I can't do it justice. I need that slapping bass line. I need that amazing chorus of joy. I need that great percussion. But that feeling, that song, it keeps bubbling up in me as I think about food, as I think about kindness, as I imagine the kindness economy and food in it. 
Imagine a growth in local food production, a growth in people here becoming a part of that growing, that doing, which is a noticing and a knowing. I think of that and it rises up with joy and and confidence and power in me. I keep thinking of a film I watched on Netflix a while back, and I Googled to try to find the name of it, and I and I failed. But it was set in Japan, filmed in Japan, and, and the main character, office job, office home, she got a special leave, like um, a change is as good as a rest leave. It had its own name. So she could go back and help with the harvest at a farm that was in some way kind of distantly related to her family. And she found such joy in their time there, being part of that harvest. And and the visuals were just amazing. I think they were harvesting saffron, you know, gently cupping flowers in their hands to remove the stamen and leave the flower blooming. It was, it was beautiful. But I keep thinking of that idea of, of all of us being a part of a greater whole that might seem so far removed from our everyday. And yet we rebuild and strengthen and invest in that connection. I can imagine something like that, giving one another time to join in the work of growing, giving us all time and support to go out to the land, to get work done and and rebuild connections. Making new plans, we're going to start it again. Rise up, rise up, oh, rise and feel your power. Rise up, rise up. Oh, gosh, it feels so good to sing that song. Well, I got to say, growing things, which is the first one of the three-course meal today, the growing things is not easy. It's actually, it's hard. And the world, though, is full of places that people have gardened and enriched, places where harvest is close at hand and it needs little attention, that don't look much like the square-cornered flattened fields that we associate out here in the West with farming. There are other ways of raising food, that look like particularly healthy and verdant grasslands, forests, waters, flocks, life, a deepening of life and diversity that makes eating well year-round kind of almost easy. Let me give you an example. This was one of my first examples with, with this kind of wisdom applied and borrowed and learned from. I grew with Three Sisters Garden. Uh, When I lived at Castle Green before I moved in with Arno here at the farm, we have a community garden there, and I got two plots. And one of them I gardened as I had other years, you know, with beds and aisles in between for stepping in when I needed to weed or uh, seed or harvest or thin and and all those things that you need to do with the garden. The other one I just fenced round, and I hilled it up, and I popped in there the three sisters, corn, beans, squash. And I had managed to find some variety of seeds of corn and beet and squash that were older, that grew well here. And that garden, it took a little care to set it up. It took a little care to get it going. But once it was rolling, it took care of itself. Now, this is wisdom applied. This is learning taught and passed on and built upon over millennia. I mean, those three sisters, they don't appear on their own. They are planted and cared for and and in spaces that have been created for them. Although I suppose you could come upon such a clearing and convince yourself that it happened naturally. No, this is people working with land and paying attention and benefiting from that attention and care. Because all three of those seeds, they each put different things into the soil that that benefits one another. And so a garden with those three plants in it grows so much more verdantly and richly and easily and is so much more resilient to the challenges that weather might throw their way. 
And they also support each other in other ways. The big, fat leaves of the squash cool the ground and keep moisture in and, and allow the, the corn to, to grow strong and tall. And as this tall, strong corn stalk grows, the beans climb up it to find the light. It's an amazing piece of science applied. And boy, did it ever put to shame my more Western-style, rectangular garden. That's, that's what I'm thinking of. In a sustainable local food system that we could spend generations building, but we need to get started, that I can imagine right here in this place we now call Thunder Bay, soon, soon, as soon as we can get together and start making it happen, our, our food-growing efforts are forever works in progress, forever lessons being learned and watched for, things we all pay attention to and see as being really important and, and really wonderful. Growing food is proactive and reactive, and, and many hands make light work. Most of all, I imagine, the benefits to those many hands. Spending time together growing food will grow happiness as well as food security. The happiness of rooting yourself in and caring for your home and seeing the fruits of that care as life deepens and riches and grows stronger. I can almost imagine that colonialism impoverished this land of so much of its wealth, of healthy growing spaces, and cared for generous harvest places by accident. I can almost imagine that. That those who came here from Europe's unsustainable and very different habits and understandings, tasked to take from others what they could no longer provide for themselves, I can almost imagine they ruined so much plenty, so much sustainable food systems, by accident, because they didn't recognize this plenty as the fruit of generations of careful, clever work, as the intentional results of generations in humble and respectful relationship with this land. Because we don't see what we're not looking to see. Even really big, obvious things are easy to miss, especially when they make us feel uncomfortable with our decisions. I think of the video of the person in the gorilla costume dancing in the middle of the screen that, that, that Sam told us about in the final episode of the second season. A gorilla most people completely miss when they are directed to watch for something else. That video that, that Sam thought of when we, were, when we were discussing how easy it is to miss what you're not looking to see. We often do not see what we are not looking to see. Our brain will try to convince us otherwise. But, yeah, we've got a lot of blind spots. I can almost imagine that these losses were entirely accidental, but I, I, I don't actually. Those coming to extract also aim to impoverish and weaken the people they've come to steal from. I mean, the, the Romans would salt the fields when they conquered a new land. Salt the fields so they could not grow food there. The mass deforestation here across Ontario of the ancient white pine forests, that was a salting of the fields. It wasn't just a collecting of valuable timber to send back to make um, masts for sailing ships. And actually, most of them were also used to build the first high-rises in Europe, the tenement buildings that were many stories tall, but that wasn't why they were collected, not the only reason they were collected. It was a salting of the fields. I hosted a woman from South Korea once 
I was living in Montreal then, and I brought her with me to near um, Algonquin Park, driving past all these trees, all this wildness. I was so proud because I come from such a place full of wild generosity. Only she was appalled. She asked where the trees were as she stared at trees, and I, we didn't understand each other. But in South Korea, a forest is valued by the ancient trees within it. Ancient trees are all known and celebrated, and she could see no grandmother trees. She couldn't believe that there were none to be seen. It appalled her. And as I grew to understand what she was failing to see, what she meant when she said, where are the trees, I too was appalled, defensive, and shaken, because I'd had no idea. I got to get an idea, though. Um, I wrote a song on my album Bones from the perspective of a settler kind of feeling this loss that had been removed before the space she tried to farm was cleared for her. And then later, my, my stepdad, Michael Fay, and I uh, wrote a musical together called The Last of the Great White Pine. That was another imagining and digging into that history. I went to the archives, the National Archives in Ottawa, and found a whole bunch of pictures of the harvesting of that ancient forest and also of the tearing out of, of those roots to try to farm in the Western style on land that had been so recently and for so many centuries ancient forest. I mean, the size and girth of those trees, just heartbreaking. And of course, we're still salting fields in Canada, giving ourselves narrow frames to explain it as being necessary and logical. But it is a heartbreak and a crime. So here, where the, the true ancient forests are so long gone, we have much to rebuild and restore and replenish. It will not happen overnight, but it will feel so good. And it will need attention, humble, consistent attention and wisdom and applying all that we know and being ready to learn so much more. Damming rivers, flooding land was another salting of the fields here. Here where people traveled by water for millennia. Imagine that the food gardens were richest along the shores. That only makes sense. That's where the wild rice beds were, for instance, and the sweet grass. Another wealth built up over thoughtful, skillful, countless generations that needed no more maintenance than a skillful, respectful harvest at the right time that didn't take too much, and that instead thinned where thinning promoted health and growth and spread seeds where seeds would do well, a harvest at the right time, stepping lightly, leaving only the smallest and lightest of footprints. Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Walkamerer is one of the references that most informs this podcast. You can find my whole library on the homepage at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca. Robin Walkamera is both an academic biologist, celebrated, very accomplished, and a First Nations woman, proud, and very consciously rooting herself in her culture, language, history, working to deepen and, and grow it, sharing stories in order to spark good things happening. So, one of the stories she shares in Braiding Sweetgrass is of a study comparing sweetgrass harvested in traditional ways with just leaving sweetgrass undisturbed. A big, solid, Western science-applied study. 
The expectation being that, of course, the undisturbed would win out. That was the control group. That was going to give us a stick to measure how much damage was being done by harvest. But instead, the clear findings were that the traditionally harvest beds of growing food and, and ceremonial wealth did better harvested. The harvesting enriched them, made them healthier and stronger and, and expand. We are a part of this web of life. When we add our skills, our attention, our learning to the growing around us, we can help deepen that life, even as we build our own food security and feed ourselves. The many shores of the, of the rivers and lakes and wetlands of northwestern Ontario were all known and cared for through millennia since time began. And almost all of those beloved and well-cared-for shorelines have been lost, drowned, flooded for hydroelectric dams. There's so much rebuilding, regrowing and restoring to do here. So much salted land to help and heal and build a connection to. I mean, dams not only drown shorelines, they also strangle the natural movement of life and health along waterways. Some northwestern Ontario dams don't even produce hydroelectricity. They're built for other reasons, and somehow we choose to keep them there, blocking the natural movement of life along the water. Somehow they remain harder to remove than they were to erect, even as we show how they strangle life. If you've not yet heard my conversation with Phil McGuire in Season 2 about his Save the Mothers campaign, I recommend it. He's inspiring such a man of heart and vision and clarity. He worked so hard to raise our understanding of and our valuing of this essential and powerful movement, how life breathes and moves across the land and through the waters. I wear my Save the Mothers t-shirt with pride, hoping to spark conversations. Conversations are something I imagine this growth of local food to prompt. I imagine a pouring of love onto the land, growing food and growing connections. Rise up, rise up, oh rise and show your power. Rise up, rise up, everybody's dancing in the sun. Rise up, rise up, it's time for celebration. Rise up, rise up, spirit's time has come. Spirit's time has come. Spirit's time has come. You don't get from an untended field to a sustainable, rich, food-giving diversity in a single season. There are fields, untended, all around northwestern Ontario. I will share with you in the landing page for this episode a link to the recent report card on food production and food access and everything to do with food in northwestern Ontario. And yeah, it's it's kind of devastating, actually, how many acres are no longer being farmed. For no good reason except, well, that's a rabbit hole. I won't go down. But there's lots and lots of land that we can use and that could use us. But it will take time. It'll take attention and, and trying, learning, improving and collaborating just to get close to where we were before the forests were cut, the shores flooded, and poisons spilled into land and water in many, many, many places. There's so much to restore, and the thing is, we need to do more. 
because the time before had more stability of climate than the current moment has. So as we rebuild and deepen all of that powerful nature that will help draw back down carbon and restabilize a climate, we have to do it despite that instability. And the key to that is diversity, a diversity of seeds. And small landholders, farmers that have farmed traditionally for generations, know this. They breed a wide array of different versions of each food thing. Have you ever had a salad of heirloom tomatoes? I, I don't know if you know, but one of the people who started to save all of those heirloom tomatoes, a biologist who went out to her garden and planted seeds to grow again plants that they'd fallen out of fashion and might have fallen out of our lexicon of options, was right here in Thunder Bay, Seeds of Diversity. One of the founding members is a Thunder Bayer. Anyway, tomatoes are one of the the heirloom seeds that has made a bit of a comeback. And you might have had a salad where the tomatoes had a range of colors. They might be pink, yellow, purple, brown, as well as red. And, and a range of textures. They might be firm or soft. They might be chewier or juicier. And a range of flavors. They might be brighter, citrusy, meatier, thicker. It's amazing how many ways a tomato can be a tomato if given a chance. And each of those variations in the end product that we eat is also a variation in how it flourishes, what sorts of conditions it can soldier through, and and which ones are devastating to it. So if you plant a diversity of seeds, a rainbow of carrots and potatoes and beans, you're not just going to have more interesting plates at the end of the day, but you will have a harvest. Despite the weather that you cannot predict, you will have to ask that plant to survive and to give you a harvest despite. So diversity of foods, that will be one of the ways we weather this storm and enrich this land, as long as we're careful, right? We don't want our seeds to go and do unintended things as well. We are a partner here. We are not the expert, the expert's mother nature. So that paying attention, that care, that connection and relationship is so much a part of this growth that I can imagine and I, and I so look forward to. And there are many, many studies that show that you know, small, diverse, traditionally managed farms, when allowed to flourish, are more productive per square inch than the great big sprawling ones that, that you see as you drive across the prairies that have come to dominate the growing landscapes of North America. And, and one of the reasons, besides their diversity, is because they have a lot of people working at them. There's many hands making light work. So how do we do that? I don't know, but we can. I mean, food is so essential, and growing is such a joy, and a learning, and a connecting. We can figure it out. And that outpouring of many hands making work light, many opportunities to learn and to teach, that will be a joy. Rise up, rise up, oh, rise and show your power. Rise up, rise up, we're dancing in the sun. Rise up, rise up, it's time for celebration. Rise up, rise up, spirit's time has come. We want lovin', we want laughter again, we want heartbeat. We want madness to end, we want dancing. 
We want to run in the streets. We want freedom, the freedom to be. That's the real harvest of this local food production growth, I'm imagining. The growth and the wealth we will gather when we connect with our land and pay attention and learn from it. Nature knows how to grow, how to heal, and it calls on us to do what is needed. I have a hedge of rhubarb. I mean, it's a lot of rhubarb. And to me, it's an illustration of both how nature tells us what needs doing and how much fun it can be when we do it together. So I moved here, I see this rhubarb, and as soon as spring comes, it shoots straight into seed, which means it's root-bound. So I, I invite a friend over, and we each grab a spade, and we start splitting that root and popping the new little rootlings around as we chat and we, and we gossip and we just enjoy each other's company and the land and the work. And before we know it, we, we hadn't even finished splitting that grandmother rhubarb. My goodness, her root went down like probably four feet. She was so rich with the capacity to spread. Uh, we didn't even finish that job. We kind of ran out of spaces to easily pop it in and we raised our heads and went, okie jiggity, I'm going to have a hedge here. I must have 100, maybe 200 rhubarb plants in that ditch. It's, it's almost embarrassing, but it's also wonderful as an illustration of how time flies when you're doing good work with good people and good company. And the land is asked for that help and is happy for it. You can feel it. I was listening recently to the Blind Boy podcast. He's, he's from Ireland and podcasts weekly, and I really enjoy his monologues. And in this one, he was, he'd been asked by a listener, like, what do you do? What are some of your practices that feed your mental health? And, uh, and he started talking about rewilding. He said that he has a little garden, like three feet square, and a few years ago, maybe three years ago, rather than mowing it, he sprinkled some seeds in it. Seeds he'd bought very carefully, wildflower seeds that were Irish wildflower seeds. He said, you know, be careful. You could be picking up something that says wildflower seeds and they're wild somewhere else, like in Poland. But he'd found a seed producer that was selling seeds that are native to Ireland, and that's what he bought. And he scattered them. And the next year, in those tall grasses that had been there before, he started to spot dozens of wildflowers. And then he was bowled over and, and his heart was so lifted, his mental health so healed by the life that was attracted to this, this return of the wild, the bugs, the lizards, the little mammals. He said it, that was the number one thing he'd ever chosen to do to improve his mental health. And he said, you know what, if you don't have a little pot of land, another great idea is to buy wildflower seeds, a little bit of modeling clay, a bit of compost, and make seed bombs. He's like, bomb the neighborhood. You know, roll those three ingredients together into a little golf ball-sized dry ball, and then toss it where the rain might dissolve it and, and sprout those seeds, and, and wild will return to a place that doesn't have it. It could be a bit of urban devastation that you rewild. That, he says, just knowing you have that power, you have that capacity, you can make that choice and see its fruits and the land around you is an amazing balm for a troubled heart and an amazing cure for what ails you. I loved it. I just, I just loved it. Seed bombs. 
Why not? Let's go for it. Rise up, rise up, rise up and show your power. Rise up, rise up, everyone's dancing in the sun. Rise up, rise up, it's time for celebration. Rise up, rise up, spirit's time has come. Everyone's time has come. Spirit's time has come. It just keeps bubbling up in me. I imagine the harvest deepening the growth and the life in spots and plots around and through Thunder Bay. I imagine recently farmed fields. According to that report, about 10,000 acres uh, less are being farmed around Thunder Bay now than just five years ago. 30,000 less acres farmed over the past few decades. So there's lots of opportunity. A field, a recently farmed field, a farmer knew that land cared for it, leveled it, enriched it, and can tell you a lot that'll give you a head start in, in bringing more life back to it with the work of many hands and, and an intention to bring joy and, and build relationship with that land. Many hands could be neighbors pooling their efforts in town, maybe even removing a fence and, and sharing a schedule so that... Um, growing that you started doesn't suffer from a time of inattention. I have stories about that. Our garden here is um, is a wash with potato bugs. They're an invasive species, Colorado potato bugs. So all of the family, but particularly the boys, get tasked with picking potato bugs off our potato plants as they grow. Not a fun job. Picking them off and drowning them or squishing them. No fun. And then a couple years ago, we had to go to a funeral. We had to go down east in the middle of the growing season. The potato plants were beautiful and lush and two feet tall. We just hilled them over. We know that the potatoes had started. It was going to be a great harvest. But we suddenly had to leave and not be there to pick potato bugs for about 10 days. And when we came back, the potato bugs had eaten the plants, a whole field of potato plants, to the ground. To the ground. <sighs> Growing is hard. It takes attention in many hands, and sometimes a neighbor pitching in and daring to ask and sharing the job. So I imagine this being a, a rewilding and a reconnecting all around Thunder Bay and through Thunder Bay, like seams of new life and new connection and new projects pitched and started together. I imagine shuttles, carpools, community bulletins. I even imagine bunkhouses, maybe, and, and trail cams. I don't know. There's so many ways we could do this, and so many people who could be a part of it. There's great gardening experience that could be brought in and, and tapped into. There's scientists. There's students. There's community organizations like Roots to Harvest that, that could work with us to help make this happen fast and effectively and respectfully and joyously, I think. I think we'll sing. If everybody feels a part of it and valued, and nobody feels like they're being asked to do more than they can, everybody does what they can according to their means. Oh my, what joy we would have to sing of. We will talk about the harvest and the sharing next. But first I want to give a shout out to Leah McKay. She designed the ad for Something Different This Way Comes. You can find in this month's edition of The Walleye, our first ad. Check it out. It's great. I love it. 
And Leah McKay continues to help also in getting the word out about the podcast through her social media marketing savvy. Something Different This Way comes as an independent a podcast as you can find. I write it, I record it, I research and fact check it, I compose music for it, I edit, I post it. And the only sponsors I have are you, listeners, who choose to put a little money where their ears are and give me a boost. And what a boost each donation is to my heart and to my bottom line. And there are costs. I pay monthly programs to record and and posts that I pay even between seasons, plus one-off expenses like that ad. And I detail them all at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca. I also detail there any contributions that come my way with my profound thanks. All I'm looking for is the equivalent of a cup of coffee, a pint of beer. If you were to see me out and about and wanted to thank me for this work by buying me a drink and you listen regularly and choose instead to contribute a little something regularly, then you are a patron helping to get this show on the road. And those who don't contribute can thank you as I do. Thank you. To contribute, look for the GoFundMe button on the homepage at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca or you can email me through the contact link. You can also join my newsletter. I send one out once weekly during the season, giving you a little behind-the-scenes intel. I'm so delighted you're listening. Thank you. Now, let's think about storage. Food storage. One, two, three, one, two, three, plenty. One, two, three, one, two, three, plenty. Grow, keep, and share. Plenty food everywhere. One, two, three, one, two, three, plenty. One, two, three, one, two, three, plenty. Grow, keep, and share. Plenty food everywhere. I've been growing most of the vegetables I eat and harvesting locally the fruit I eat year-round, buying local flour. I do what I can. For about 18 years now, and there is a learning curve. For example, in my first year of doing this, I had a whole bed of lettuce all ready to harvest at once. One woman living alone with maybe 50 head of romaine lettuce. Yeah, that was a teaching moment. I gave the lettuce to Shelter House, and I learned. The next season, I planted less lettuce and more broccoli, and I learned how to keep broccoli. I would blanch and freeze it, mostly. I started to figure out how to store my harvest. Grocery store culture makes it easy to miss, but a harvest is a brief thing. You plant your seed, you weed, you might water, you watch it grow, and then you need to know the moment to harvest. That's the first trick. Too soon, and your food's not ripe, it's not nourishing, might easily rot. I remember another learning moment. I had ordered organic pears, a whole box of them, and I had booked time off so I could can them all. A year's worth of dessert, it would be delicious. But when I opened the box, the pears weren't ripe yet. But there was the time. I'd set the time aside. So I stubbornly canned unripe peaches. 
What a waste. What a stubborn, foolish waste. I mean, it would have been hard to change my plans and, and wait until they were ripe and then clear the decks to do a year's worth of dessert canning then and not when I'd foreseen I might be able to. But now that's what I would do. That's an excuse I might give you. I'm sorry. I know I said I'd be there, but today's the day I need to can my pears, and that's what I got to do. That's how I have learned to value my harvest over other plans. It's a year's worth of food. You got to do it when it needs to get done. Harvest too late. Wait until you can get around to it, and you're going to lose a lot of food. Food will go to seed. It'll get tough. It'll lose its sweetness. It's all roughage. It's no joy. Sometimes it even rots. Some harvests need to set a skin then. It's not just the moment's perfect. Now I'm going to pick it and eat it. No, if you want it to keep, sometimes there's steps you need to do to set the skin, to dry things, to, to harden them off. Some you need to leave out in the sun. Some you need to keep out of the sun. There is a science and a skill of managing each and every harvest. It's not easy. It's not self-evident. It takes time to learn, but it can be taught. There's an expertise in the keeping of food. And that's another growth we need to see and we will see in the kindness economy as we build this region's food autonomy and savvy. Have you ever bought veggies that went bad in your fridge before you got around to eating them? Food that you have babied from seed through weeding and mulching and harvesting and storage, when that goes bad, that hurts more. But it is hard to plan a whole year's worth of menus while watching where your food is at. Some things keep well for over a year, but lots of things don't. And so there's that monitoring and, and menu adapting so that nothing gets wasted is another huge learning curve. And we're going to talk about sharing food, but i got to put it out there. This is not something I think we should all be in our own little kitchens trying to solve all at once. This is something we should do collaboratively. And I'm therefore recommending that we support and, and, and celebrate and encourage local businesses to gain that savvy and provide that service, just like the village used to, as soon as they could, all get together to build a school and maybe build a church and certainly build an oven and get a baker to bake everyone's bread. Because professionalism and a devotion to that daily task is an investment well made. And the person that is doing that job for and within their community, I mean, that is a good bet. I encourage you to listen to my conversation with Charla Robinson in season one about the challenge for most small businesses being not... <laughs> Not how to manage their greed and their quest for profit, but rather how to get the hang of putting profit on their priority list at all. Because the vast majority of people that get out there and create a business work extreme hours, put their whole family financial security and wealth on the line because they are so eager to help. They can see what they can do and they can see how it would be of service and how it would be valuable in their community, and they just want to get out there and do it. That's the way people actually are. It's not just the kindness economy. It's not me imagining things. That's the way people actually are. And let's make the most of that when it comes to the science and the skills and the equipment and the prioritizing of time 
to effectively put all this food we're going to produce away so it keeps between harvests. Now, one thing many of the farms in town have, have invested in recently, from, you know, B&B potato farms to Sleepy G and, and Baloo's farms, are high-tech, very effective sellers. If you put apples or carrots or squash in a space with the right humidity and temperature and light, that really extends how long they keep. So building a place that is perfect for the food we're growing will make all the difference in how well we can feed ourselves. But not everything can be cellared. Some things need to be jammed or dried. Some things need to be pickled or fermented or can be just to vary up the ways that we eat the food that we harvest in the months far away from that harvest when fresh off the vine is, is not really feasible. I remember visiting Holland Marsh on a school trip when I lived in Toronto in the 80s. It was a high school trip. And, and we visited all these little tiny farms that had been fairly specialized in, in what they grew, although they had quite a wide array, a lot of them um, growing for their home community and only knowing the words for their food in a language I didn't speak. So that was an adventure. But they had also pooled all the resources together to build a food shed. And they proudly all pointed to it. It was about three stories tall with a big elevator to facilitate moving your food to the room that had the conditions you needed to keep that food well. And that was the make or break for them between having a scrabble buy, sell your harvest when you harvest it for whatever price you can get, versus being able to store your harvest and sell it when the price is right, when the need is greatest. It makes all the difference. So in the kindness economy here in Thunder Bay, as we grow our food autonomy, we're just going to have to build more of those food sheds. And we'll also have to support the bakers and the brewers and the picklers and the jammers and the juicers. It's going to be amazing. There's so many ways to enjoy your harvest if you plan for it. And there are many hands making light work. Nothing wasted, nothing wanted. There's a role that you can play. Grab your courage, never daunted. Growing plenty every day. Here's another way of keeping and storing food that springs to mind when I imagine the kindness economy. Shepherding. I went to the farm conference held by the Thunder Bay Soil and, and Crop Association a few weeks ago, and, and there was a presentation just before lunch by the Agricultural Research Station that had plant producers joking over the meal about how they could get animals grazing their lands after harvest even if they lived far from a cattle farm. Because grasslands need their ruminant grazers. That was what the presentation boiled down to. The science is solid. I mean, currently in, in Western culture, we have a tendency to divide the cows over here in a feedlot and the food that we feed them grown separately. But if you combine the two, a grassland with its ruminant grazer, you get more bounty. You get healthier land. And new science is showing that in a, in a long-maintained grassland with those deep roots, like a, a never-broken prairie. There are microbes in that soil that actually flourish and capture the methane 
that a ruminant will burp and fart out, that everybody's making such a fuss about the reason why we can't eat meat. I mean, we can't eat too much meat, but a little bit of ruminants on a field actually deepens that soil and captures that methane and, and puts it back into the soil to feed other things. It draws it out of the atmosphere. I'm going to put a link to that study. It's just so cool. And it explains what I talked about last week, how there could have been actually more buffalo and bison on the great plains of northwestern America before the massacre of of that keystone species. There were more of them, and yet no methane issues, than there are now cattle in North America with methane issues. It's not about the animals. It's about our way of managing them. So in the kindness economy, we let our land have their animals. The thing is, it's really easy to overgraze. So caring for animals is best done with movement, with shepherds. In many cultures, you'd winter in one place. And then with spring, once the greening and the hills around was calling to the animals, you would take them there and leave behind the nutrient-rich soil they'd overwintered in to plant your crops. So the young animals, they would move to fields. And often also, I know here around the farm, when, when Arna was young and they had dairy cattle here, the dairy cattle would often be grazing in the bush while the hay field grew lush. And then only after the hay had been mown to feed them over the winter would they get to come in and, and, and f- graze in the stubble. Uh, so that was the study that they'd been showing is the benefits of having grazing animals uh, in a field after it had been harvested. Um, it's just much more profound than just spreading manure. It just requires us to put a few gates in our fences and figure out how to shepherd again. I have to say, I get to be part of shepherding the neighbor's cows when they move from next door to here. We do it along the road, and it's a joy. I mean, I could never move a cow where it didn't want to go. They're big animals. But there's no uh, persuasion necessary here. They're just looking for guidance. They're eager to follow their farmer because they know their farmer's taking them to fresh pastures. And they're used to respecting those electrical fences that we pop up and around them all the time uh, to, to control where they're grazing. And they're super easy to pop around. I mean, my kids, when they were six, seven years old, could take a whole armful of the light plastic fencing and they themselves could pop them into the ground with their little tiny, you know, their little tiny little kid feet. Um, and then you just unspool your wiring and, and voila, Bob's your uncle. I can imagine shepherding not only being a part of managing the greater fields just outside the city, but even reintroducing urban farming with ruminant animals to our cities. Why not? I'm sure there are places that could do with a bit of pasturing and And we just need to figure out how to make that work. I think of Arno. Uh, The year that we got, uh, we helped organize for horses to pull Santa in the Santa Claus parade. Arno was actually the last float on the parade. He followed behind Santa's sleigh with a bright yellow wagon in which he had a big old couple of tubs that he'd shovel the manure into before they reopened the road. And you know that manure did not go to waste. Manure is a is a beautiful thing. We we took it here. We added it to our compost in our fields, and it was a, a welcome change up from the chicken manure that we usually use. But I have to say, it's all a little chaotic when we reconnect with the land, when we empower everybody to do what they can do and to be a part of this growth and transformation. It's a little bit chaotic. 
it's a little bit chaotic and it's a lot of wonderful. I mean, when I went to the Strong Towns presentation at the Italian Hall last month, and one of his points is that really effective, profound, and efficient, like economically sound, transformations are more chaotic and require more trust that it'll be more often right than wrong than we Westerners are comfortable with. We like control. We like simplicity. We like to see those rigid lines. And and we're comfortable with saying no to things we hadn't foreseen because we hadn't foreseen them. And that's throwing away and wasting a lot of opportunities. So if we waste not and we trust one another more, it'll be a little more chaotic. It'll be like a riotous spring full of dozens of different kinds of flowers all growing in harmony. But it will be beautiful and delicious. So now we've imagined food in Thunder Bay's kindness economy from growing to keeping. Now let's talk about sharing. One, two, three, one, two, three, plenty. 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 Grow, keep, and share. Grow, keep, and Because in a kindness economy, obviously, nobody's hungry. I mean, the true measure of a place's wealth and health and kindness is that everyone's okay. No one's turned away from the community's table. So we're going to grow this food together as a community, as a gift of love and relationship from and with this land, and then we're going to share. I imagine community kitchens and community pantries where you can pick up the food you need and take it home if you want knowing you helped make it happen you know it's not it's not patronage it's just plenty making bread breaking bread together though i think that's the real jam that's gonna be so great i imagine the dew drop in i hope you've dropped into the dew drop in maybe volunteered there sometime maybe even gone for a meal it's It's so unlike the soup kitchens that Hollywood likes to paint. There's no thin soup heavy with judgment at all. It is a joyous, welcoming, respectful place. And the food is so good. And there's so little waste. I mean, there is a professional running that kitchen. And he has trained and taught his volunteers well. So they too know how to minimize waste. And plan a menu so it uses what's in the pantry. And makes it delicious and nourishing. You can taste the love and the care and the skill in that food. So imagine if we all had a kitchen like that, a community table, that would call to us regularly throughout the week, a place to go see what's going on, share a meal, 
pitch in, help serve, spend our time as, as part of the crew so that when we are being served, we receive that gift with the gratitude of someone who has given it in return and understands its value. That is what I imagine in the kindness economy. I think there's already so many kitchens that we could start with. In churches and community centers, I think every school should have one. I think that would be such an amazing investment of our savvy and our generosity and our capacity to do good and to, and to live in this moment with our eye on the many generations to come with the intention to gift them with our good choices and the way that we are enriching this culture and this place. You've got to know, though, that it won't just happen because people show up. We're going to need to pull in and value the really skilled professionals, the chefs, absolutely. Also the managers, you know, the, the talliers, the organizers of people and staff. There's a lot of skill that we can make the most of in this sharing of food. And finally, in the sharing of food, there is the making the most of the inedible parts of food. Compost. Composting is hard. Let's be real here. Composting is hard. If you are among those with a composter at home that from which you get beautiful black compost reliably, kudos to you. You are a skilled person and that's a skill we could use. But I imagine that we instead will really leverage what the city's already doing. The city is about to introduce a, a green bin system that allow us to compost, all of us to compost, and then have that rich compost so nothing is wasted. I'm so excited, and I'll put a link to more news about that. So now it's time for your song in its entirety, composed for you today. One, two, three, one, two, three, plenty. One, two, three, one, two, three, plenty. One, two, three, plenty. One, two, three, plenty. One, two, three, plenty. 
One, two, three, one, two, three, plenty. food everywhere one two three one two three plenty one two three one two three plenty grow keep and share grow keep and My imaginings ring hollow for you, because all you can think of is who will pay? Who will pay for all this growing and storing and sharing of food? I think you have the cart before the horse. Shake it off. Local food to feed local people and nourish our local land. That is a fundamental, it's a first thing, a true essential. Put that first, others will follow. First, we do no harm. Then, we make sure everyone's okay. It's spring. Where can we start? I would love to hear your ideas, your, your notions, your essays. You could donate to Roots to Harvest or the Dew Drop In. You could volunteer. But most of all, talk about it. Think about it. Give it your own imagination. Eat local Thunder Bay, a wellspring of our kindness economy. Imagine that. Imagine. Something different this way comes. Something, something different. Something different. Something different this way comes. Something, something different. Something different. I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Ah, but first, I met a young man named Elliot at Carlino's Cafe on Simpson Street last Thursday. Ben was in the back room, geeking out with fellow early tech fans at the Retro Computer Club's monthly gathering, as was Elliot's dad. Elliot wrote the following story with me. And his dad heard it and then asked me to include it on today's podcast, which was a bit surreal. But I have a hard time saying no to young storytellers. So here you go. This is by Elliot. Nicole was a cat. He liked to play with a ball. It was shiny and red and almost as big as his head. It bounced, but that didn't scare him. He's a brave little cat. He has infinite lives and cool powers to fly. He likes to fly to the game shop at 1 p.m. because he likes to have fun and showing people his flying tricks and skills, like Spider-Man, because he also has Spider-Man web shooters. The mice in his neighborhood can float and like to play funny music, and his neighbors laugh a lot. After Saturday, Nicole went to space. He just used his flying powers and used his powers to stay so cool he could go all the way to the sun and walk on it. He could even go to Jupiter and watch the beautiful clouds. Then, after that, he went to McDonald's to have a break. Then he went to another play place so he could have even more fun with kids, Maple Tops. There were so many kids, he could be braver than anything else. Kids make him brave. 
because, well, he has claws to climb the walls. But not only could he climb the walls, but the holes he made let the kids climb the walls, too. And he made a fort with hilarious cat music. It was a real party. Everybody from the neighborhood came. The end. That was written by Elliot.